But it seems to me that in the same way that Boaz becomes famous forever because of his selfless actions in the story, this man becomes anonymous forever because of his selfish actions. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Have you ever experienced the need to be rescued? Have you ever provided care for a family member or close friend in desperate trouble? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part 17 of his series, Ruth. Last time, we started to look at the role of God as rescuer in the book of Ruth. He rescues his people from their troubles and difficulties and cares for their well-being. And he does so in his time, in his will, and according to his way. Well, today, you'll be reminded of the spiritual and eternal way in which God rescues his people and that God always does so through the one Redeemer He has appointed, the ultimate descendant of Boaz and Ruth, Jesus the Messiah. Keep that in mind as we join Tom now, here on The Word Unleashed. Boaz here immediately makes good on his midnight promise that he's going to settle the matter that day. So he left the threshing floor, and he went up, the Scripture says, to Bethlehem, That's because ancient cities were always built at the very highest point, so anywhere you went from the city itself was down, and everywhere else, including the threshing floor, was up to the city. Because of defense's purposes, they were always at that high point. And it says here, he went up to the gate and sat down. Normally, men coming from the fields would pass through the city gates and continue to their homes. But Boaz has no time to lose. He has no time to return home. Instead, the author says, he went directly to the gate. Now, here's one of those cultural bridges we have to build because that really means very little to us, almost nothing, because it's so out of our cultural experience. Let's start by getting a better idea of what the Bethlehem gate was like by looking at the excavations of the ancient gate of the Canaanite town of Gezer. The gate complex that was discovered there at Gezer was built in the time of Solomon. So it was only 100 or 200 years after our story unfolds in Ruth. Now, if you examine the ruins at Gezer and the gate complex, and it was a complex you discovered that there was, first of all, a passageway into the city that was about 13 feet wide. And off of that center passageway, on each side, there were three rooms or or meeting areas. These meeting rooms were each about 7 feet by 14 feet. This was the community center of sorts. On all three walls of those rooms, there were stone benches that they can tell at the time had been smoothed with plaster. Benches all around the edges on which those who were there for the meeting could sit. Now, Bethlehem was smaller than the city of Gezer, so its gate was probably smaller as well, but it would have been on a similar plan to that ancient gate. So, understand then that 
the ancient city gates in Israel not only controlled access into the city, but they also served as a kind of formal gathering place for the citizens of the community. They were a kind of town hall. The city gate was the place to conduct official business, to resolve legal matters. So when the text says that Boaz went to the gate, that was the ancient equivalent of saying he went to court or he went to town hall. And once he arrived, the author says he sat down. Boaz was clearly not there that morning to catch up on the town's gossip. Instead, he was there to conduct official legal business. Now, it's easy with a merely superficial reading of the Scripture to miss the significance of the next line in the story. Look at verse 1. And behold. The Hebrew word there is a word that intends to catch your attention. Think about this. Be amazed at this. The close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. Now, at first glance, this seems like a simple coincidence. But as we have learned again and again in this short book, there are no accidents. There is a sovereign God controlling the seemingly most insignificant details. And here again, the sovereign hand of God is at work in the lives of these people just as he is in ours. Boaz just happened to arrive at the city gate just in time to just happen to catch the kinsman redeemer leaving the city for his fields and his day's work. But just as is true with Ruth's chance, chancing upon the field uh, uh, belonging to Boaz, you remember that expression in chapter 2? Ruth, her chance, chanced upon the field belonging to Boaz, it says in in the Hebrew text. Just as that was no accident, behind this apparent coincidence is the hidden hand of God. Daniel Block writes, Yahweh ensures the quick resolution of the matter by sending him by the gate just as Boaz was sitting down. Verse 1 continues, so Boaz says, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Most modern translations, like the NAS, have Boaz referring to this man as friend. But that's not precisely the idea of the Hebrew expression. This expression is used only two other times in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel 21.2 and 2 Kings 6.8, where it's used of places that are not named and we're not told what the names are. In those places, it's translated, in a certain place or in such and such a place. That's really the idea here. That's why one version of Ruth translates Boaz's words to this man as, Hello, Mr. So-and-so. Perhaps a better way to express it in colloquial English is, Hey, buddy. Hey, man. Now, it's interesting to consider why the author of Ruth left this man anonymous when he includes the names of the other actors. We can't be certain. But it seems to me that in the same way that Boaz becomes famous forever because of his selfless actions in this story, this man becomes anonymous forever because of his selfish actions. Regardless, Boaz asks this anonymous relative to join him, and the man does. Verse 2, 
In addition, he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. The two key characters in this scene were already present, but for Boaz to conduct official legal business, he first had to have a quorum of ten witnesses who were citizens of the town of Bethlehem. In addition, notice they're they're identified as elders of the city. These were men of age and influence who were qualified to conduct business and to witness the town's business affairs. Because of his own stature in the community, Boaz has no problem getting these ten men who undoubtedly had other business to attend to as well to come and witness this legal transaction. They sat on the benches in one of those rooms at the gate, or if the rooms were too small to hold 12 men, undoubtedly they met in the open market just inside the gate. That's the legal setting for what transpires. Now, what comes next can really only best be called the court transcript. Verses 3 through the first part of verse 11 essentially read like our modern court transcripts. Here is what happened that day as the court of Bethlehem was in session. Verse 3, Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. In the Hebrew text, Boaz actually begins with a piece of land. He says, literally, the portion of the field belonging to our brother Elimelech, Naomi, who returned from the field of Moab, is selling. Now, that expression, the portion of the field belonging to our brother Elimelech, points back to the time of Joshua. It points back to the fact that in Joshua's time, God himself had apportioned the land of Palestine to various tribes and clans in Israel. And those allotments, according to the law of Moses, were never to leave the family to which God had assigned them. In fact, one of the reasons for the Goel or the kinsman redeemer, the reason he existed was to make sure that didn't happen. According to Leviticus 25, verses 25 to 30, Now, Boaz refers to the land, notice, as belonging to our brother. It's really impossible to determine exactly how these men were related to Elimelech. We do know there was a sort of pecking order in how property was passed down. According to Numbers 27, verses 8 through 11, there was a specific order of relatives in which property was to be legally passed down in Israel. It started, as you might expect, with the man's son. But if he had no son, this is interesting, it was to be passed to his daughter. And if he had no children at all, then it was to be passed to his brothers. And if he had neither children nor brothers, his inheritance passed to his paternal uncles. His uncles on his father's side. If he had none of those relatives, then the property passed to the closest relative from his clan. That was the order of inheritance. Although we can't be sure, it is possible, I think even likely, that the law of leveret marriage followed the same basic order. But we don't know where these men were in that sort of pecking order of inheritance. All we know for sure, according to chapter 2, verse 1, is that Boaz was from the family or the clan of Elimelech. 
And since this other man is a closer relative, he also had to have been from the clan of Elimelech. So Boaz finished his opening statement by explaining what had precipitated the meeting that day. Notice, Naomi is selling. Now, that statement seems pretty straightforward, but it's not quite as straightforward as it seems. There are actually two possibilities of what Naomi was doing here with her husband's land. The first option was that as the widow of the owner of the land, it was possible that Naomi actually had the legal right to permanently transfer ownership of the land as long as it was within her own clan. Remember, the land wasn't to leave the clan. In most cases in the Old Testament, the word here translated sell refers to the actual sale of property. So that's possible here. But but there's one complication that makes that questionable, and that is typically a widow had no right to own the land or to sell it. That's what made a widow's circumstances so difficult. Another possibility of what this means is that Naomi was not selling the land in the truest sense, permanently transferring ownership, but rather she was transferring the legal right to the use of the land and to its produce until, you remember the year of Jubilee? When the land and its use reverted to the original owner, it's recorded in Leviticus 25, verses 23 to 28, and Leviticus 27, verses 20 to 24. But regardless, Naomi has to give up the rights to her husband's land. And since since that's true, Boaz says in verse 4, So I thought to inform you, I thought... To, to make it clear to you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. Boaz directly challenges this man in front of witnesses to be the goel and to redeem the land of Elimelech. But if he was unwilling to do so, Boaz would take on the responsibility as the next closest relative in line. Now, I am sure that if Ruth Ruth was present that morning at these proceedings, perhaps hanging around in in the gate area, listening, wondering what would happen, I'm sure her heart sank as she heard this man's response in verse 4. Just two Hebrew words, it's translated for us, and he said, I will redeem. I will redeem. Now, it's possible that Boaz had anticipated this response and had waited until now strategically to bring up a very serious complication. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, okay, fine. You want to do that? I forgot to mention one thing. On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi... You must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Boaz says, listen, I I need to let you know that the circumstances are more complicated than I initially explained to you. On the same day that you purchase the land from Naomi, you will be responsible for Elimelech's line and for making sure it continues. 
And since Naomi, his widow, was elderly and past childbearing age, that wasn't going to happen. And so it meant very practically that this man must then marry Elimelech's daughter-in-law and father a child through her, Ruth, for the sake of both Elimelech and Malon, Ruth's dead husband. When Boaz says that you must do so in order to notice what he says, to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, what he meant was to establish their memory and honor into the future by ensuring that there were descendants. On a humorous note, and you know, there's so many places in the scripture where you just find yourself smiling. This is one of them. I mean, first of all, the way he waits. I love that. There's this great piece of land. You're going to want to buy it. Okay, I'll buy it. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention one thing. (laughs) One little insignificant detail. It also brings marriage with it. But then notice how he says it. You almost have to think that, that Boaz intentionally, as he describes Ruth and the necessity of marrying her, he sort of intentionally throws in the Moabitess to make her just a little less attractive to this man. She's not even Jewish. She's a foreigner. Now, the next verse makes it clear that this new complication has seriously affected this man's interest in the land. Verse 6, the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Now, what does he mean here? Well, think about this. First of all, if he were to marry Ruth and to have another child, a son, then that son would get all of Elimelech's inheritance. So he would gain nothing from the marriage. He, would gain, he wouldn't gain the land. He wouldn't gain any financial advantage. The, the son, the new heir, would get all of Elimelech's property. In addition, he would also have to give a portion of his own family inheritance to this new heir. So this isn't looking like a very good deal. In addition to the cost of the land, in addition to the potential loss of inheritance, he's also going to have the cost of providing for both Naomi and Ruth. This land deal is becoming quickly very expensive. So verse 6, he says, "'Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption,' for I cannot redeem it. Now, whoever wrote the book of Ruth, and we can't be certain of that, wrote long enough after the events that are described here that he has to interrupt the story to explain a custom that was no longer practiced in his time. Look at verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the matter of attestation in Israel. You know this, but the primary footwear in the ancient world were sandals made from leather secured with straps or laces. And as the sign of a legal transfer of property or rights, there was a custom in Israel to remove one of your sandals and give it to the person whose property or rights to whom the property or rights had been transferred. Your property, your rights had been transferred. Along with the property and the rights, you gave him your sandal. Now, notice the two purposes in verse 7 of this bizarre practice. 
First of all, to confirm any matter that is having to do with the redemption and exchange of land. The sandal then was a sign that a final legally binding agreement had been reached. Something had happened if you ended up with the other guy's shoe. The author adds, this was the manner of attestation in Israel. It was a legal witness to the deal. Now, having explained this practice, the author goes on in verse 8 to tell us that this is exactly what happened. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. And while it doesn't say, obviously he gave it to Boaz. Verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Boaz summarized the legal agreement that had been reached. He had acquired all of the rights and all of the responsibilities that went with the redemption of Elimelech's estate. And Boaz told the ten elders that he'd officially assembled, as well as the the crowd, the people that had stopped at the gate to watch this transaction, that they were all witnesses of the agreement. Now, both of these things were important. Think about this. In In a simple agricultural society like that, if in the future anyone questioned his ownership of the estate of Naomi's late husband or his legal right to marry Ruth, he had two lines of evidence he could present. The sandal of this anonymous relative and any surviving witnesses, any of the ten who had survived to that day. But it becomes clear that Boaz's chief concern was not the land. It was Ruth. Look at verse 10. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife. Boaz expressed his legal right to marry Ruth. It's also interesting here, for the first time in this book, we learn which of Elimelech's sons Ruth had married. It was Malon. But the most important thing about verse 10 is not that Boaz intends to marry Ruth, but why. Look at what he says in verse 10. In order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You know, here is a man of incredible nobility and excellence. Even in this, his chief concern is not gaining a wife. Although it becomes clear that that he is committed to Ruth, that he cares deeply for her. I think safe to even say he loves her. Although the, the text doesn't say that. But he is concerned to act in a way for others. Notice his motives, three of them. First of all, he says in verse 10, to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 17 of his series, Ruth. Tom will have part 18 next time, and we hope you'll join us then. But Tom, every word of Scripture has its purpose, including today's explanation of the Old Testament's laws on land and property transfer. Can you help our listeners understand how these ancient laws 
might apply to them today? Here's the primary lesson for us. When we seek to obey the Word of God, even those laws that seem at best unimportant to us, in the end, God honors that obedience, and He weaves together with our obedience His sovereign will, just as He did with Boaz, to overcome the challenges that were involved with redeeming Ruth. And ultimately, those laws provided a way for the future Redeemer to come. In the same way, God uses our obedience and weaves that together with His sovereign purpose to bring about His perfect plans in our lives. May God give us a commitment to obey Him, even down to the smallest details. Thanks, Tom. And friend, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at the Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's all at thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.